So here we are. We've we've done two weeks looking at 9-11. I think yep. we really need to look at the guys that perpetrated it. Yes, 100%. Yeah. So basically we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia. Oh, my gosh. So much fun. Yeah, because you you used to live there, didn't you? No, well, my parents lived there off and on for a very long time, and I have been there, and I do have a few stories, I have to say. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your stories as we break down why 9-11 may have had a lot to do with Saudi Arabia. A lot. Yeah. You're listening to I Spied, the redacted files of Australian intelligence. (laughs) What? What? No, I can't. Try speaking up. And that's what happened. Oh, right. Hello and welcome to I Spied. I'm Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan. And I have to say, one year I've been doing this with you. Yes, you have. (laughs) One year. Happy anniversary, dear. (laughs) I didn't get you anything. I know. Oh, hang on. Is it a bottle of champagne? Oh, Oh, there you go. Nice. Now, <laughs> oh, it's all now, over my monitor. If, if only, if only I could be drunk every week when I talk to you, it would make it so That'd much easier. <laughs> Hell, I am. Um, I'm <laughs> yeah. drunk all the time. I talk to me because I am such loathsome company. Yeah. Um, now, are we, are so you, look, it's- a year on, and we have to thank our listeners because we do have people who actually come back every week. It's been oh nice. my god! We've got it, it's actually kind of weird. Yeah. Um, Twitter yeah. is our, our Twitter account at Ice Podcast is now bigger than um, my Twitter account, which isn't hard. <laughs> and sometimes you don't even know what's yours and what's not yours. So you know, no. And look, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we, we will definitely talk about our Twitter account. But right now, let's 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 finish off what we started two weeks ago okay. with. And I really, I didn't realise that we actually started this podcast around nine eleven. We did. But, um, I know. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it until a year later. I think, you know, well, timing. But, you know, the big thing, we've looked at what happened in the US and what ha- what happened with their intelligence services and how it, it happened. Yeah. We looked at the aftermath, but what we haven't looked at is the people who actually perpetrated it. Yeah. Right? Who were these terrorists? All right. And the big thing that most people don't realize, because, of course, as soon as it happened, Afghanistan was in the frame and Iraq was in the frame, but one place that never really came into the frame and it should have was Saudi Arabia. Well, I mean, it kind of was in the frame. I mean, there's all that conversation about, you know, how they got the Saudis out of America. So they didn't. Ooh, we'll talk about that. Yes. That's that's a big thing. But the thing is, 15 of the 19 guys that perpetrated 9-11 were Saudis. Yes, they were, Saudi, they were Saudi citizens. And interestingly enough, there was a great point that was made by one journalist who basically turned around and said, what would have the US reaction have been if it had been 15 Iranians? Right. Iran, Iran would have immediately come into the frame and God knows what would have happened after that. But the thing is, Saudi Arabia didn't fall into the frame. And the interesting thing about that was when you look at it, Basically, Al-Qaeda was funded by Saudi Arabia through the 90s by wealthy Saudis, not necessarily the government, but certainly by wealthy Saudis. In fact, well, Osama bin Laden was an exceptionally wealthy Saudi himself. His family is one of the most successful business families in the country. So there was all of this information that was pointing to the fact that it had a lot to do with Saudi Arabia, right down to the point that the FBI had a source in LA who said that one of the guys who wasn't one of the terrorists but had a lot to do with setting it up, he actually was regarded by uh, a guy by the name of Omar al-Bayoumi, 
He was the logistical support. And there was an FBI report that stated that he was, and I quote this, treated with great respect inside the Saudi consulate in LA, well regarded by consulate personnel. And when he entered the building, the agent that they used, their source stated that Bayoumi's status was higher than many of the Saudi persons in charge of the consulate. Mm. And yet he was in the country as a student. So immediately there's this question, what did Saudi Arabia have to do with this? Yeah. And, you know, we kind of seemingly got a few answers to that in between episodes. Yes. And also, we've got a big answer from it because the FBI yeah. recently released some material. Now, you put me onto that one. You basically sent me an email going, God, look at this. And of course, down the rabbit hole. I, 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 I was like, I can't wait to share this with David because he is going to be so excited. <laughs> Ooh, I sat there clapping my hands. Um, I was, it was, I sort of went, oh, this is great information. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm down this, this deep well. And again, it reflects back on the American. American intelligence community and how they were reacting to this influence of Saudi Arabia and also these instances of events that were occurring in the United States leading up to 9-11. Because there's a really interesting story about two Saudi citizens who got on a plane flying from Phoenix to Washington. Mm. Now, the tickets they had, they were in first class and it was paid for by the Saudi embassy in Washington. Yeah. Now, these guys spent the entire flight asking lots of questions of the... um, flight attendants, mm. you know, you know, questions about security in the plane until they both tried to get into the cockpit. Right. On a number of occasions, flight attendants were going, please step away from the cockpit door. No, 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 we just want to have a look. Right. And they kept saying, we want to have a look, we want to have a look, until finally the pilots landed the plane in Ohio mm. and these guys were arrested and then subsequently released when they went, we just wanted to look. But a lot of people think that that was probably – a fact-finding mission for these guys to work out what security was in place on these planes and how they could circumvent it. Now, there's no names of these guys. That's never been revealed. There's no names of who they were, but they were definitely Saudi citizens. Now, here comes the question, A, why would Saudi Arabia do this? And B, why would they be allowed to get away with it? Well, yeah, look, the thing is there is a definite and has been for many years a definite love-hate relationship with Saudi Arabia. What a lot of people don't realise, you know, pre-World War I, you've got the British, basically, they they found oil in Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi. The Arabs in Saudi Arabia were nomadic tribes people and Mm -hmm. when you have a westernised country saying, we want something you have and that is oil and these people are like literally there with camels and just, you know, roaming the countryside and all of a sudden they're given money and, you know, access to um, industrialised worlds which they'd never really seen before. So they've never been allowed or had the capacity to kind of grow They've kind of gone from nomadic tribes to here is what's going on in the industrialised world. And that is- They kind of went from the 15th century to the 20th yes. century very, very quickly. And that's a head and fuck. The, that's a head fuck. And, well, the thing was you, you had the English were there. You had the French as well. Mm. So you had the French were coming through Lebanon. You yep. had the French coming or the English coming through Palestine. You had all of Saudi Arabia. You had all of what was Persia at the time, which yeah. is now Iran. Right. So you had all of this area. And they were. There were Bedouins. I remember when I was in Qatar. At one point, I was walking down the street through Doha, and this guy just stops in the middle of the road yep. with this incredibly long rifle and a camel. 
and just stopped in the middle of the road. And I went, oh, this is going to cause a traffic problem. Nah, everyone just went, he's better one. Leave him alone. Mm. So the problem was they never really set Saudi Arabia up properly. Now, there was a young guy by the name of Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. Um, now, Lawrence came up with this solution. He actually worked very closely with all the different tribes. And in fact, a lot of his work was pretty much intrinsic to the fact that they, the Brits and the French were able to overthrow the Ottoman Empire, right. which again course was holding that whole area together. Mm. So he came up with a way of going, we can divide this up in a certain way and it will work. Well, the French and the British went, we don't like that. We want it this way so we can get our hands on the oil. And then around about the 1930s, in steps this little country that didn't have a lot to do with it called the United States of America. And they started talking mm. to the Saudi, the Saudi, the House of Saud. Because Saudi Arabia is called Saudi Arabia after the Saudi family, the Sauds. Yes, yes. So the thing was the Americans, there is a very fabled meeting between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and King Abdul Aziz, who was at the time the crown prince or the king of Saudi Arabia, where basically Roosevelt said to Aziz, we want to have a an oil security pact with Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, now, there is no document of this meeting. The, the meeting happened during a trip through the Suez Canal on an American uh, battleship, but there is no mention whatsoever of oil security. But that is essentially what America wants. Yep. It wants oil. 100%. Now, you have a country now that has a crap ton of oil. Well, I think we have to go back to the Carboniferous period to decide that, <laughs> yeah. where Africa pushing up, pushed the, the the bottom of the Tether Sea up to sea level and bingo, we have Saudi Arabia. So there's all of this oil. Now, yep. that's a huge, huge reason for America not to mess with Saudi Arabia. Yes. The, the other thing is, and this was a really interesting point, was post 9-11, a lot of the families of the victims wanted Saudi Arabia to in some way recompense them. They wanted to sue Saudi Arabia yeah. because they were Saudi citizens. Now, the Americans have uh, – there is a, a regard of basically um, sovereignty where essentially you can't – the sovereignty of immu – sovereign immunity where a member of a country can't be charged or a country can't be charged for something its citizens have done. Now, the thing is the Americans came up with this thing called the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act or JASTA, it's called – now, this essentially, Bush wouldn't do anything about it. Obama tried to push it through. Mm. And well, Obama vetoed the JASTA legislation because the Saudi Arabians turned around to him and said, if you let this piece of legislation go through, we are going to sell $750 billion worth of US assets. Right. That's a huge threat. Someone owns $750 billion worth of stuff in your country and they're threatening to sell it off. Now, you're not going to want them to do that. That's a huge influence. Mm. Now, what they did was Congress actually turned around and went, we're going to outvote the veto. You can do that. You can overthrow a veto if you get enough numbers. Only one person in all of Congress voted against it. Everybody else went, no, we want this thing. JASTA came into effect. But since then, very little has happened because of it. Mm. So the victims of 9-11 could sue Saudi Arabia, 
But, man, I've got to tell you, if someone's going to lawyer up, it's Saudi Arabia. They're going to have some fairly hardcore lawyers. Yeah. So, on the, you know, the 20th anniversary, you know, the US, the FBI released this newly declassified document, which actually looks into mm. the connections between the Saudi citizens in the US and the 9-11 attackers. Now, the relatives of the victims have long urged the release of these files. They really wanted them. We do. I mean, we need to add they're really heavily redacted, of course. Mm. But there's always been that conversation about what was Saudi Arabia's involvement. And it's interesting that that was – it never appeared like that was an avenue that was pursued to its full extent. During the 9-11 Commission – again, great audio book, have a listen to it (laughs) – during the 9-11 Commission, they actually absolved – Saudi Arabia of any responsibility. Right. They said there is there is no hard evidence. There's certainly circumstantial evidence, but no hard evidence that Saudi Arabia was in any way involved in this. But at the same time, mm. we have this evidence that Saudi Arabia were basically giving logistic support to members of the organisation, Al-Qaeda, mm. that actually planned and executed the operation. Now, we do actually have to have a look at and uh, you know, for anybody out there listening that is Muslim, we are, before we go any further, got nothing against Islam, but we are dealing with a fundamental sect of Islam called the Salafi Jihadists. Yeah. Now, uh, I'd like to, I'm going to steal this one from Charlie Pickering. He once said it beautifully in a stand-up night at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. The problem with fundamentalism is not enough fun and too much of demental. Correct. Now, this is the thing. The Salafis basically see the United States as the great Satan. They yep. call it the great Satan. Yep. And funnily enough, it's a, you know, Iran calls the US the great Satan and a lot of Sauds call the US the great Satan. But if there's anyone that the Saudis hate more than the US, it's the, the Iranians and vice versa. They don't like each other. Right. One of the reasons, the other reasons why the US is so entwined with Saudi Arabia is they've got a lot of military commitments to Saudi Arabia. They've given them a lot of tech. They've mm. given them like every tank that rolls into Yemen and every drone that flies over Yemen, it's an American-made drone. So they're using that as well to pretty much counterbalance the Iranians because if the Iranians get ahead of themselves, they could quite easily overrun the peninsula, mm. the, the Arabian Peninsula, and then we have another massive problem. So Saudi Arabia and this sect within Saudi Islam called Salafi Jihadi, they basically regard the US as the great enemy Mm. and they will do what they can to take it out. Now, Saudi Arabia itself is generally what's called Wahhabi, which is not as fundamentalist, but it's still very much Sharia law. I think Mm. you said that when you were in Saudi Arabia, they had religious police walking the streets to make sure. So they had the Matawas and the Matawas would walk around with big sticks, right? And if if you're a buyer wasn't long enough or if you showed um, too much skin, they would just come up and whack you on the legs. Oh, my God. Yeah, they would just whack you. They'd just give you a whack until you put your pants on. Yeah, to make, like, just as if, like, just to point out that, you know, you haven't really covered up enough. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of instances of stuff like that. I mean, when, Mm -hmm. for me to go to the beach, for example, we'd have to pay to go to a private property to swim in the beach. So, we would be segregated away from... um, any kind of uh, Saudi Arabs, Muslims, anyone. So no budgie smugglers. 
Definitely not budgie smugglers. Okay, and note to self, do not wear kilt in Riyadh. Okay, good. Yeah. You've got that. I'm a big kilt wearer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Yeah, you don't. And you do, I'm wearing one right now. You basically, um, you don't walk down the street with shorts and a T-shirt shouting Jehovah, basically. Damn, that's going to really that, – that, that limits my options on a Saturday afternoon. Look, that – and look, that's that's okay. Yeah, like, yeah. This is a country they've just – this is the decision that country made. We've got to let them at least have that much autonomy. Uh, but what's interesting is when you have your extremist sex, it's like anywhere. When you have extremism start coming in, you run into problems. Now, of course, from – this was actually also created – Al-Qaeda was created – through the CIA, essentially uh, yep. promoting the Mujahideen yep. in Afghanistan. Yep. Now, Afghanistan's fallen over again. Do you know what the Saudis did pretty much a few days just after America pulled out of Afghanistan? Uh, what did – oh, what I do know this. What Go. You do. You tell me. <laughs> they basically signed a deal to buy military material That's right. off the Russians. Right. So, and here's the thing, Russia really wants to get into the Middle East. That's why they've been so heavily involved in Syria, because essentially they've got a ton of oil and gas sitting around the Caucasus and they want to get it out. Mm. And the best way for them to get it out is through the Middle East. So there is all of this dynamic going on in the Middle East. America has welded itself to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia has, is kind of, beginning to wriggle its way out. And again, another interesting point about this is, and this is because of the Trump administration as well, so going back to the former administration, the Iranians attacked uh, an oil refinery in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Now, normally that would create a massive stir and you would expect the Americans to do something about it. Well, under Trump, they did nothing. Right. They didn't react. So, again, Saudi Arabia felt like it had been betrayed by what is meant to be their number one ally. So, Saudi Arabia and also MBS and the Khashoggi thing, at one point, Biden had described Saudi Arabia as a rogue state that needs to be brought to heel. He has since pulled back on that rhetoric. But the bottom line is we have a country that it used to be you know, number one friend yeah. that is now unsure of its position within that relationship. Yeah, and Joe Biden called Saudi Arabia a pariah as well for its part. That's the one, a pariah. Yeah, that was in the, the, in the gruesome. Thinking. Yeah, just for its part in the murder of um, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And look, yeah. it was it was horrific what happened to that journalist. And we we know that that came from the top. We know that that came from the crown prince. Oh, there was another interesting thing that just came out recently about the Khashoggi thing as well. Uh, they do believe that the uh, guys that actually perpetrated the murder were likely trained by United States intelligence services. Oh, there is no doubt. There, there is no. <laughs> yeah, so. There is no doubt that a lot of a lot of this mess is created through for, foreign interference by the U.S. Oh, without a doubt. And again, this is the thing, the whole, you know, Chalmers Johnson and blowback. Yeah. Blowback is a constant with American intelligence. Yes. They constantly go in, they'll do something, and then 10 years later, it's blowing up in their face. Yeah, just stay away. Quite literally. Stay away. So, bottom line is when you have a look at what everything that's been going on, I mean, this US-Saudi relationship combined with 
basically the Americans putting 250,000 American troops into Saudi Arabia at the start of the Gulf War and then not withdrawing them all. Mm. Now, there are still American troops in Saudi Arabia and the Saudis do not like this. This is a holy land. All right. Yeah. As much as as uh, Israel and Jerusalem is a, a holy land in the Jewish church, in the Islamic church, and in the Christian church, Saudi Arabia with Mecca and Medina, it is a no go zone. I mean, I I don't think if you're if you're not a Muslim, you're not allowed to enter Mecca or Medina. No, you can't. No. But these are holy sites. Yeah. So the fact is that the the Americans have now parked troops there. Now, admittedly, most of their operation goes out of Qatar. Yeah. There's a massive base, the largest. U.S. base outside the United States is in Qatar, yep. but that is, again, right next door to Saudi Arabia, and um, there are still troops in Saudi Arabia, and the Sauds don't want them there. Yeah, I mean, and also Saudi Arabia is is quite deliberate in trying to in try to minimise the Western influence, particularly on things like democracy and mm-hmm. women's rights and and any kind of idea or notion that that people can do what they want. That, that is just not how how they operate. Now it's oh, it's an autocracy, yeah, definitely an autocracy. And, but what's so ironic is having been there, their love for American culture. <laughs> Like they just, you know, they have the Applebee's, they have the McDonald's, they have mm. everything American they have. They have it. But that was an interesting point that, again, this was back in my ASIO days. I met a, an FBI hostage negotiator mm. and he basically said, if you gave me an unlimited number of green cards, he could empty Lebanon in a day. He said right. by dawn, Lebanon would be empty. But this was back in the late 80s, early 90s when – Lebanon was a hotbed of terrorism. Mm. You had the Hezbollah. They'd been sponsored by Iran. Abu Nadal, they'd been sponsored by Iran and by the Saudis. There were all of these different groups being sponsored by Saudi Arabia and Iran and Syria. And it was all coalescing around Lebanon. And he basically said, if you gave me a green card, I could could get rid of everyone. Every terrorist would move to the United States. Because- while it's the great Satan, Satan's got all the good albums. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a great point, as what someone once said, you know, hell is full of some of the best rock and roll in the world. So there is that idea that as much as we hate it, how much of that is based on the fact that it's almost, it's envy. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's that whole um, use of Americanization to kind of thwart co- communism, like the whole ideal of give the people something to aspire to, and then maybe they'll just, they'll want to leave like the control of what they're operating under, the systems they're operating under. But it's interesting to note as well, Saudi Arabia, particularly when my parents were there and they were there on and off for a good 20 years, it was completely run and completely set up by Westerners. You you would be hard pressed to find uh, a Saudi Arab working because the Telstra set up their telecom systems. The Western world literally went in and were working there. Until yeah. until such time that they could start handing handing stuff over, but a lot of um, Saudi Arabs were were getting paid, but didn't really have jobs. They just had to show up. They didn't have to work for them. Mm. But the whole country is is not is not run by them. No, the 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 day to day administration, yeah. all the decisions are made by them. Yes. But the day to day administration is done either by uh, Western 
contractors, or the flip side of that is all of the day-to-day scut work is done by essentially indentured servants. Yeah, they they have a lot of indentured servants. They have um, you know, the Filipinos are very very massive. Filipinos, yep. Thais, yep. Indonesians, yep. Bangladeshis. That was the same thing in Qatar. You yep. sort of there were the guys wearing the blue overalls that were just sitting there on these immaculate lawns mm. in the middle of the desert, just pulling weeds out and it was like that was their day. Yeah, and and that you know they they work incredibly hard and everything they earn gets sent back to their families. Sent back home. Yeah, and they're, tra- yeah, they're treated but- very poorly, I have to say. It's kind of a form of racism. Well, it's a class system. So- well, it's, it's, it's a form of indentured slavery. Yeah, 100%. What was very interesting for me was uh, hosting a beach volleyball tournament in a, a country with Sharia law mm. is yeah. in and of itself fraught with peril. Oh, 100%. Particularly when the girls walk out on the court wearing their, their outfits. But if if there were the Arabic teams, there was never anyone in the stadium mm. to watch Qatar or Saudi Arabia or anyone play. But as soon as the Indonesians, the Thais, Malaysia, any of the Southeast Asian countries came out on court, the stadium would pack out. Right. And it would be party central. It was like back at Bondi during 2000. Oh. It was just nuts. And then as soon as that team was like finished, as soon as that game was over, it was back to a wasteland. Yeah, I mean, so the- you would you would hear reports in Saudi Arabia of, you know, whenever Arabs would leave the country, they would be on the booze, they would be at the strippers, they would be doing all the things that they could not do in Saudi Arabia. So the, yeah. it, it was a person's job. When I arrived on my Air Saudi flight, it was a person's job to go through the magazine and redact like things they didn't like or rip out pages. So because oh I because I couldn't bring in a magazine that had anything you know that, that they did not like, it was someone literally sat there with a marker and would like scribble things out that they just did not like. So it's it. It's an incredibly, incredibly complex country to kind of yes. to kind of be in and operate in. You know, they still um, they had they did they didn't have a judicial system. You know, they were they were when I was there, they were women could still get stoned to death. They had yes. they had what the Kawajis, the white people, called chop chop square, which you know they still did daily beheadings. They still chopped your arm off for stealing. Yes, there was a there was a I remember a documentary when I was growing up about, mm. you know, the death of a princess who was a woman yes. who was I've read having an affair mm. and yeah, she was beheaded, publicly yep. beheaded. Now as much as we can say well, it's barbaric they could probably look at us and say the same things about things that we do. We don't behead. Uh, I mean, I think the last what was it, the last person that was hung in Australia was Ryan back in the 60s. Mm. So the thing is when you look at let's getting back to nine eleven, when you look at Al Qaeda, when you look at the Salafi theory, yeah, they're based and Salafism standard homogenized Salafism is mm. not this bad. Yep. It's very very fundamental, but it's not fundamental to the point where I'm going to fly a plane into a building. But essentially, the Salafi jihadists want a caliphate, so. Al-Qaeda has led to ISIS, has led to Jamala Islamiyah. It's created all of these even more fundamental, more extreme organisations. And what ISIS did in Syria and northern Iraq, that was bad. Mm. That was getting really seriously what they wanted. So if Saudi Arabia looks bad, what Al-Qaeda and ISIS want is Far, far worse. Yeah. I mean, the Taliban themselves, uh, there was a report recently that there was a fist fight in the cabinet mm. room 
because somebody decided that I don't want like what your attitude is, so they started a punch up. Right. And this isn't does not bode well for a country that is trying to establish itself as a global power while it's still regarded as a terrorist organization. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially looking at Saudi Arabia, it's and its involvement in 9-11, th- there is definitely fingerprints all over the place. 100%. S- Saudi Arabia had something to do with it. Is anyone ever going to call them on it? No. Probably not. No. They're way too powerful. They still have um, so much economic sway on the planet. Yep. And if America loses that toehold that they have in the Arabian Peninsula, mm. all bets are off as what's going to happen next because Iran is growing. It's got one of the youngest populations on the planet and it's a big population. Yeah. So- here we go. Strap in. 9-11, 20 years on, and we're still <laughs> dealing with the fallout. And still not really getting answers to questions around the involvement of Saudi Arabia. Nope, not at all. 